At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. You're just being used for spycraft. It's like listening to the wall. You know, that would be a good podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Jane Coston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, we wanted to talk today about Mayor Michael Bloomberg, a late entrant into the presidential sweepstakes, one who I had not been taking seriously uh, for the first couple months of his campaign, but he has um, rocketed up in the polls, rocketed up even faster in the discourse. Yeah. And so now— <laughs> I, I admit to continued bafflement right. about the— politics of this, but The Weeds being a serious policy podcast, I have been persuaded that instead of expressing bafflement on this podcast, we should try to illuminate some aspects of the things that Mayor Michael Bloomberg has done and promises to do. Right. Yeah. The, the, because I think that there is kind of, there's the the theory of Michael Bloomberg, which is if you want to beat Trump, you need someone who's kind of like Trump, but way richer, who just hates him a lot and will spend whatever it takes to beat him. Which I think for some voters, um, there's some people talking about this a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, which is a platform that I should rely on less for this sort of thing, but whatever. You know, the idea of, like, we did some polling, and it turns out all Democrats care about is beating Trump, and ergo, we got you a guy we think can do it. Michael Bloomberg's going to be Trump. Okay, so let's talk—so Bloomberg has been a couple of things. He's been a major political donor, and we want to talk later about his role sort of in national politics as a donor. And he was also— mayor of New York City for 12 years, uh, originally as a Republican, although it was understood universally at the time that Bloomberg was actually a moderate Democrat, that the, the way this came together was that New York City is obviously a very Democratic city, uh, but Rudy Giuliani had had two terms as mayor. A lot of people who liked Giuliani were sort of afraid of the Democrats getting back into power. And Michael Bloomberg really wanted to be mayor. He thought that he was not left-wing enough to win a Democratic Party primary. So he became a Republican, uh, a pro-choice Republican, a pro—by whatever the the standards of 2001 was, pro-LGBT rights, uh, socially liberal Republican. Uh, But critically, I mean, he pledged to have a continuity with Giuliani on policing and crime control. And that was sort of the key common thread than in Bloomberg's governance, which wound up departing from Giuliani's in a whole lot of ways. But he was like Rudy Giuliani. He won tons of votes from 
Republicans right. uh, on Staten Island and the white neighborhoods of Queens. He was very closely uh, associated with the New York City police unions. Right. And, and the other relevant data point here is that he got elected in November 2001, which meant that instead of having to kind of deal with an ambivalent Giuliani legacy, which had existed pre-September 2001, he got the massive boost associated with being Rudy Giuliani's right. heir apparent at the peak of Rudy Giuliani's popularity. Yes. I, I mean, I, I, I just foreground this to understand why policing stuff weighs so heavily yes, right. in people's assessments of Bloomberg because the sense what it meant for Michael Bloomberg to be first a Republican and then later an independent was specifically that in the context of New York City politics, he sided with the police department against their critics in the civil rights and right. activism communities. Uh, there were other At things— At a time when the police department was kind of at the peak of support among the New York City electorate as a whole. Yeah, and well, and, and this went up and down. I mean, it, it had different sort of sort of movements. Um, and then this, in turn, has come to be sort of shorthanded and oversimplified as Bloomberg supported stop and frisk, which he has now apologized for um, and which, you know, a lot of people, I guess, came to think was bad. Uh, we had Kellyanne Conway criticizing it on television which, uh, again, yesterday morning, although Trump— Yeah, the Trump involvement, it's a little bit like the Spider-Man pointing at the other Spider-Man meme. Whenever Trump talks about, like, criminal justice or stop and frisk, like, I just— for, for let's Let's table that for right now, but I think it's worth talking about, like— what was stop and frisk and how do we how do we think about Bloomberg's role in it as he looks towards a 2020 run for the general election? Right. Stop and frisk. There are a couple of separate legal rulings regarding its legality that uh, took place in the in the 2010s. Um, it basically the idea is that you go into a high crime neighborhood and you stop people of whom you have a reasonable suspicion might have been doing something, which is different from probable cause, right. um, as determined by the Supreme Court in the Terry case of 1968. And so what this ended up resulting in is a lot of black and brown New Yorkers were stopped and then frisked for possession, uh, weapons, something right, like that. The, the, the political, ar yeah. the, the rhetorical argument was that it was supposed to be a move against illegal guns because yes. the way to get illegal guns off the streets wasn't just to find people who had already committed crimes and confiscate their guns, but to identify who might be engaging in other criminal activity right. and remove any guns that they weren't licensed to have. Well, no, I, I, would so say, I, I, I would say even stronger than that because it's important to link this to Bloomberg on, on gun control. Control, right, right. right. you so, can't separate the two, so, and I think that that's right. you know, he's yes. spent millions on gun control efforts. Uh, put it behind every town, which is an organization he largely funds. Um, you know the Virginia um, races earlier, uh, early last year were largely won in part on this issue of gun control um, and funded by Michael Bloomberg. You can't separate right. the so, two. So, issues. so Bloomberg is a gun controller, and he's a gun controller in a. 80s, 90s Democrat urban yes, crime exactly. response sense, not a 
one-off school shooting sense, but that if you look at it, if you statistically decompose, why does New York and Los Angeles and Chicago have so many more murders than London and Paris and Berlin? It's not that there's more overall crime. It's that specifically the crime in American cities is much more lethal. And the crime in American cities is much more lethal because criminals carry handguns. And so drug dealers who get into violent disputes shoot each other instead of hitting each other or, you know, knifing each other. And the the Giuliani uh, – sorry, the, the Bloomberg approach to stop and frisk was that if you are a young black or Latino man walking around a high crime neighborhood, the odds are quite, you know, reasonably high that you will be stopped and frisked. If you are found carrying a concealed weapon, which is illegal in New York, you will get into very serious trouble. So now you have a strong incentive if you – you know, no matter who you are, but to not carry a weapon, right? And so the idea of this was not so much that you would – I mean it was in part that you would catch people with drugs or guns on them. But it was mostly to to disarm – the populace. Right. It was a way of enforcing the city's ban on carrying concealed weapons, right? Which was because obviously you can't see that somebody's carrying a concealed weapon. Right. That, that's what makes it concealed. And we should, we should note that this it there it was supposed to be stop question and frisk. Yes. And then the frisk would only happen if there was suspicion of a possible crime or that had escalated to probable cause. But that's not. Generally, how that quite worked. Well, actually, actually, you can see it, it. It really escalated. I mean, there had always been some doing of this, but in in Bloomberg's first year in office, there was uh, like mid five figures uh, number of stop and frisk incidents, and at its height in his in his uh, the end of his second term, they were doing five hundred thousand yeah. plus of these a year. So that's obviously not because the number of people of whom there was probable cause. <laughs> You know, escalated by a factor of ten. This was a uh, a, a tactical decision, and I, I was recounting before. This is a difference from the Giuliani era, right? Which was Giuliani era NYPD had a similar theory, which was that they wanted to stop as many people as possible and see if they had guns or outstanding warrants, right? They basically wanted to do a dragnet and find everybody with a concealed weapon or an outstanding warrant. And their approach to it was to become um, super fuss budgety about anything, right? So if they— The broken windows theory. Right. Yeah, but I mean, but it was like a specific kind of— I think, instantiation of it, right? Right. They, they, they were trying to maximize the number of people who they could stop. So there were lots of arrests of street urinators, um, of, of turnstile jumpers, of aggressive panhandlers. Um, I, I I got picked up uh, when I was in high school for uh, drinking beer on a park bench. Then my friends and I had to skip school to go to a court date, and we got stopped again because we were truants. And what would— Bloomberg did was he refocused this from instead of having comps all over the city trying to stop whoever they could catch doing anything, he sent them specifically to high crime neighborhoods. Specifically African American Latino well, neighborhoods. Which, which were African American and Latino yeah. neighborhoods. And then he just stopped young men. Yep. In those neighborhoods, broadly. And then you could get into endless 
sort of, you know, like, is it a duck or is it a rabbit conversations on, well, was he stopping people, young men who happened to live in high crime neighborhoods, or was he stopping young African-American and Latino men? Because the high crime neighborhoods were the neighborhoods where African-Americans and Latinos lived, right? Right. The, the whole theory of, like, if you take the theory of stop and frisk as articulated by Bloomberg and his defenders, it makes perfect sense because it assumes that there's, like, zero cost to an interaction with the police for someone who is, in fact, innocent. That is not how life yes. works. No, especially And the whole when, thing about stop and frisk yeah. and, you know, I think the reason, you know, the— there have been a lot of threads of the liberal or like the like white progressive evolution on criminal justice over the last decade. But I think one of the threads that's maybe been understated is the extent to which first person accounts of how uh, like of what indignity it was to be stopped like 10 times before you turned 21 in a New right. York neighborhood made it made a lot of liberals who hadn't previously been thinking about police interactions as something that actually had a that, yeah. that caused problems for daily life to it caused them to understand that that really it it's not just a matter of like oh statistically you're more likely to be stopped and frisked and that means racism it's a matter of like this actually had a substantial impact on a generation of black and latino new yorkers and i think it's important to note two things one um Stop and frisk was heavily encouraged and was part of, you know, NYPD wanted high stop, question, and frisk numbers, which encouraged the practice. And in general, when you encourage people to do things, that means that they start doing things that perhaps are not within the letter of the law. But I also think it's important to note something that Matt said I think is really important for how we need to think about Bloomberg and how we need to think about stop and frisk in context is because— when Matt got stopped for drinking on a park bench, he was stopped as part of an overall broken windows policing effort. Under a Bloomberg administration, Matt does not get stopped. Matt, you know, a African-American or Latino Matt who is in a specific neighborhood might get stopped. But this is very much, um, you know, the impetus of stop and frisk was not a overall crime effort. It was kind of like, what if we let... These people over here go to Strokes concerts and smoke weed outside. And what if we told these people over here that they will get stopped 15 times before they turn 21 for various things that they may or may not have done? It was very, you know, we've been hearing the term like kind of a two-tiered justice system. Mm -hmm. This very much is that. And because it is, is not, it is not, you know, not everyone is getting stopped. There are people, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of friends of mine who were in high school in the in the early 2000s in New York. And it, from their perspective, it very much was, you know, we could basically do whatever it is we wanted because we were not considered to be the problem. Well, it fell very heavily, right? So in peak year, they're doing over 500,000 yeah. of these stops. It's a city, 8 million people, which is a lot. Uh, but out of that 8 million, you know, about half are people of color. Right. About half of those are men. Uh, of that group, less than half are young. Right. And so, you know, it's a, it's a lot of stopping of young African-American yeah. Latino men. And— but, I, I mean, I think it's important to contextualize to an extent that in retrospect this has become because, – because Bloomberg has re 
conceptualized himself as a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Um, And because stop and frisk was ended by judicial order and crime continued to fall, which completely undercuts the the rationale for doing it. Because obviously, like, even when Bloomberg was up there, right, when they were having controversies, they weren't saying, like, yeah, well, we drew this for no reason. Like, they were saying they were doing it to right. bring crime down, and crime was falling. So now it it appears as this, like, big black blemish on, on Bloomberg's record. At, at the time, he was perceived, particularly early in his term, to have calmed down the yes. toxic relationship between the NYPD and specifically the African-American community. Ray Kelly, his police commissioner for most of this time, had much higher African-American approval rating than the Giuliani people had. Mm. Uh, in Bloomberg's first re-election bid, uh, he got about half the, the black vote. Uh, you know, he, he did worse later. But the the understanding of what was happening at the time was that to an extent, Bloomberg had stepped away from Giuliani's sort of, like, frankly, like, fairly open, like, advocacy of police misconduct in favor of a more uh, technical sort of approach to running the city. Right, and, and this it, was also happening as kind of the leading edge of a broader policing trend toward place-based policing in the, mm-hmm. like, late 2000s, early 2010s, which, like, is based in the theory that you want to in order to minimize the overall police presence, you have to target it based on the, like, specific intersections that are going to be the biggest problem. And that that turns into a balance of equities issue because if you're just focusing on minimizing crime and do not care at all about the civil rights implications, then sure, you can go very, very hard on a very few locations. But if you're if you actually think about civil rights and community relations concerns is something that might be a constraint on that that's going to change your mind. And Bloomberg right. is, is generally the kind of single source utilitarian who is not likely to consider civil rights concerns to be a constraint if there is a more if there is a maximally efficacious policy. Well and I mean in particular, I mean I think to give to give Bloomberg his due, he's a broad brush non-libertarian person. Yeah. Right? Like he was a real pioneer in anti-smoking policies that are now very uncontroversial and almost every American jurisdiction has. But like at the time that Michael Bloomberg said you weren't going to be allowed to smoke cigarettes in bars, that was considered like a really dramatic you know, idea, right? He also tried to ban large sodas, which never took off. And now right. now that strikes people as crazy. But like at the time, he said you couldn't smoke in bars and coffee shops. That also struck people as, as right. crazy. Um, but the point is, is like Bloomberg is the kind of socially liberal pro-business person who you might sort of gloss as like falling in the libertarian quadrant of a, a two-axis thing. But that's actually not no. his view at at all. No. Um, and, and then, you know, uh, uh, on the policing, uh, one of my favorite studies, this uh, John McDonald, Jeffrey Fagan, Amanda Geller, looks at the effects of local police surges on crime and arrests in New York City. Um, it's 2016. And, and they find that when there were sort of neighborhood-level surges of police personnel, that crime did fall, um, that you also saw more stop-and-frisks, obviously, when they put more officers there, but that in the neighborhoods where, for whatever reason, the officers just did less stopping and frisking, the crime reduction was exactly equivalent. And so this 2016 paper, but I think it forecasts the result of the de Blasio era policing, which is that 
They stopped the stop and frisks and didn't change anything else. Yes. And crime continued to fall. And it that may not actually be what everybody wants out of policing. Um, you wound up with uh, Eric Garner dying in what was more of an old-fashioned uh, quality of life. Asked, like, yeah, he, he was even, genuinely breaking a law. Um, but wh- it, it not, was loose cigarettes. No, no, right. Like, let's be real here. <laughs> I, I mean, exactly. But I mean, but that was... Yeah. That was the step back, right? Was like, there will be a lot of police officers, um, particularly there will be a lot of police officers in high-crime neighborhoods, and they will look for violations of the law right. and be really tough on it. Um, and that... That works. It turns out that works just as well. And there was no point at all to the the random stop. It's been interesting to see how conservatives have responded to that because I went back and went through the National Review archives on stop and frisk. And uh, they they argued repeatedly that stop and frisk was fair and constitutional and basically awesome. But then there was a piece uh, after the crime reductions that happened during the de Blasio era were – where it kind of posted, where they basically like we were wrong on stop and frisk because it turns out one it you know they uh, Kyle Smith I believe is the author he pointed out that like the reductions in crime have maintained but also the fact that it is a massive constitutional giant pile of nonsense that is stop and frisk especially because seventy percent of the people stopped had done nothing mm-hmm. which is seven out of ten people which is a lot of people to have done nothing. And especially, I think that you know, we've been, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, this idea of kind of like there are people for people who should be allowed to commit crimes and people who should not be allowed to commit crimes. And this is kind of the clearest deviation of those two. I, I do want to kind of quickly address a lot of the discourse around stop and frisk when it comes to the Bloomberg candidacy. Like, look, yes, Michael Bloomberg initially ran for office as a Republican, right. but it's not exactly like... There aren't tons and tons and tons of Democratic politicians, including several past and current presidential candidates, uh-huh. who have also who were around in yeah. politics in the 80s and 90s and therefore espoused views on criminal justice that are to the right of where the Democratic Party currently is exactly. on the issue. I think that so that's like, been something, you know, people went after the Clinton administration for the same thing. But, like, the idea of criminal justice reform in 1992 or even in 2006 looks different. But it just so happens that perhaps going back— we we're right now, and they were wrong then, regardless of their political. No, party. no, no, yeah. right. But, but this is a, a lot of the kind of controversy around Bloomberg per se is that he he's saying that he's trying to move past any conversation about stop and frisk by saying he's apologized. The apologies in question were extremely recent. It's right. not. It is not being paired with a very progressive current criminal justice platform. Uh, you know, like when Martin O'Malley ran for president president in 2016, his record as mayor of Baltimore was substantially to the right of where he ran as a presidential candidate on criminal justice issues. And that negated, I mean, also no one was paying attention to Martin O'Malley in 2016, Mm -hmm. but like it did do something to blunt some of the criticisms that he would have otherwise had coming. And so the question of exactly what should Democrats be saying about past support for tough-on-crime policies versus where the progressive base of their party is right now right. is, I think, an unresolved one that the Bloomberg candidacy is allowing Democrats to paper over by saying, well, he's not really a Democrat. Right. right. Here, I, I want to take a break because I, I, I want to talk about the rest of, yes. Yes. Sorry, of so there's, there's, there's a lot. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. You know when you feel all cooped up inside and wish you were outside? So you go outside, 
only to miss the comfort of being inside? Well, Burrow is here to help you have it both ways. So you can enjoy the comfort and style of inside your home, outside, with the outdoor collection from Burrow. Burrow says they're known for timeless design, thoughtful construction, and little details that make life in your space easier. And that extends to the outdoor collection. With Burrow, you can get seating that allows for easy assembly and disassembly. So you can move or store them away as needed. No tools necessary. Burrow's outdoor furniture is made for all seasons and built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware and quick-dry, stain-resistant foam cushions. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Seems like you can have it both ways. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first Burrow order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off burrow.com slash weeds. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way. Using 100% recycled plastic, new bottles made using no new plastic except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you. Because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at madetoberemade.org. One reason, though, that I think it's valid to spend so much time on the stop and frisk issue, and one thing that I do think makes Bloomberg different from a, like, possibly partially repentant Joe Biden or, or whatever on criminal justice issues, is that this was such a linchpin of what Michael Bloomberg's politics were about. Yes. Right? That, you know, the, a mayor is only in charge of so many things, right? Compared to a senator, like, votes on all kinds of topics. Right. Policing is a huge part of any mayor's portfolio. And Bloomberg, the Bloomberg story, right? Like, what was Michael Bloomberg doing? Now, he had plenty of liberal policy positions. Like, he was pro-choice. He was pro-gay rights. But those were things that made it acceptable to vote for a Republican and then independent in a heavily Democratic city. They weren't the reason why you would vote for him. So it was like, what was the purpose of Michael Bloomberg's mayorality? And it was to continue with a version of Giuliani-era tough-on-crime policies. That would be the reason that you did it. And, you know, up, up until he decided to run for president, he would have said not just specifically defended the details of stop and frisk, but he would have said, look at my record. I was a successful mayor. Look how much crime fell during my 12 years here. Because he couldn't say, well, look how I solved the city's housing affordability problems. Right. He couldn't say, look at how I got the uh, long-delayed Second Avenue subway built. Right? Because, like, he didn't do that. Right. So it's like what what did one of the other big things he did as mayor was he got into lots of fights with teachers unions about the suite of policies around uh, educational reform. And, you know, I, I think he was right on some of those things. I think he was probably wrong on some of the other things. But I really think that looking back on the educational reform era in the early 21st century, I think – and I say this as somebody who was a proponent of it. I think you have to say that it, it has under-delivered. Right, that if you look at the trajectory of New York City public schools, they're fine. They're better in some neighborhoods than in others. It's it, there's just no you you can't 
You could have said on behalf of Michael Bloomberg's criminal justice policies that the crime rate was much lower by the end of his mayorality than it right. was at the beginning. And then you can get into more complicated arguments about it. But like the high level point that like what he and other tough on crime mayors promised you was less crime and then you got less crime. Like that like makes sense on right. a baseline level. It's not clear to me that like there was a transformation of the K-12 school system in some huge way. And we also know now, I mean, New Yorkers are very solipsistic uh, and a lot of the media is based there, but that for good and bad, like New York's trajectory is just very similar to Washington's trajectory, Boston's trajectory, San Francisco's trajectory, Seattle's trajectory. Basically, if you were a historic port city uh, that was, you know, had an arts community and was an attractive place for college graduates to live, you have seen a growth in technology sector employment, a reduction in crime and growing housing affordability problems, and a lot of big question marks about your education system, um, right? And like that's true of New York, but it's true of all kinds of peer cities. Uh, Michael Bloomberg stands out by being richer and more famous than right. like Adrian Fenty. But oh like, man, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> right. But like yes. Adrian Fenty was an education reformy right. mayor that yeah. DC had for some of the time. Bloomberg was in office, and then he lost, and it was, like, not that big of a deal one no. way or the other. I, I I liked Fenty because he he fixed our taxi regulations, uh, and Bloomberg doesn't even have, like, an achievement on that right. level. And it just, it just strikes me that, like, they, they have this, like, Mike will get it done tagline on his thing, which is deliberately ambiguous in its meaning. But, like, for a guy who was mayor for 12 years and had— spent tons of money on throwing his political influence around. Like, what do you have to show for it? Is like some bike lanes? I mean, I will I, say, like, there's a large— if you are listening to this podcast, there is a very high likelihood that you have seen a lot of Michael Bloomberg ads on television because yes. he is spending a lot of money on them. Yes. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the motifs in the ads is his record on healthcare as New York City yes. mayor, which is like— it's he's doing it because it's now become assumed that a, pres, a Democratic presidential candidate has to have a plan to expand health coverage. But it was unique because it wasn't a thing that cities were really taking the no. lead on. It was a state and to a certain extent federal right. issue. And so it does presage a certain Trump era trend where progressive cities are thinking about what can we do to maximize the extent to which our residents are living under progressive policy, even if that's not true at the national right. level. But it's not like something that you would look to a mayor to do. Right. It's kind of an expansion of federalism in a very interesting direction. But it really goes more so to the idea, what I keep thinking about, and what I want to hear uh, Matt talk about a little bit, is because there is the there's the Michael Bloomberg who was the mayor of New York City, a real place, a real thing that happened for 12 years. And it's interesting to watch him attempt to extrapolate that outward to being like, I could be the mayor of New York City of America. And the idea of that, of just like, you know, you've been, like a lot of people have been to New York. You've been there. You've done things. You, you know, you got from wherever you needed to be to somewhere else and everything was fine. And basically saying like, I could do that for everywhere. And it's interesting to see how the actual ins and outs of his tenure as New York City mayor, where he did some things and then didn't do a lot of things, 
is almost less important than the idea of that, of like, you know, it was basically Bill de Blasio's pitch, except given, I don't know, with more money or more effectively, of like, if I can be mayor of America's largest city and one of the most important cities in the world, I can certainly be president of the United States. Even though, like, you know, we've heard this before, um, not necessarily with mayors of New York City, but Uh with governors of New York State. Um, But the basic conceit of that is that the two things are synonymous when they are not. And so I think it's interesting to think of how much Bloomberg's candidacy relies on this idea of like, well, I've run this thing, and then I ran a business, and I was okay at both of those things as far as you know, unless you've lived in New York and have very specific opinions about it. Most people don't live in New York. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see how that like, I can extrapolate that outward, and you can just assume that whatever it is I do in New York, I do in America— Because those two are the same thing. The interesting thing is that Bloomberg's pitch relies so much on his record as mayor of New York when, frankly, the reason that he can run as a Democrat in a Democratic primary in 2020 is as much because of the kind of extracurricular national politics stuff that he's done during and certainly after his time as mayor of New York with stuff like mayors against illegal guns. You know, he's he's thrown down on climate. He's been... He hasn't thrown down money-wise on immigration reform as much, but he certainly was one of the kind of nationally prominent business-slash-political figures doing a lot to call for comprehensive immigration reform uh, when that was a thing. So he's able to point—he has a record of expressing progressive values on a few issues that have become very important to progressives, and that is—you know, I think that that's— Some of what is making him palatable to a certain swath of the Democratic Party is that, like, there is a consensus among Democrats that guns are a winning issue for them right now. Mm -hmm. That, that, you know, climate, while maybe not a winning issue, is, like, such an important civilizational priority that it's really, really good to have a potential president who understands that we need to, you know, rein in carbon emissions. That, like, one of the things that I've seen in immigration world is a certain relief that, like, oh my gosh, finally someone is running an ad about immigration, which is basically the extent of it. It's, it's not that Bloomberg has a more progressive <laughs> platform than his right. competitors on immigration. It's that he's running an ad saying Trump is bad on immigration and like this is not who we are, which— Well, I think it's—but I think it's not just ads, right? It's that, you know, if you were to try to understand, like, why is Michael Bloomberg a Democrat at all, right? Like, why was Michael Bloomberg a Republican when he decided to run for mayor in 2001? Right. And it was policing, right? Like, mm-hmm. that, that was the the reason that was anchoring him there. And then why has Bloomberg drifted into the Democratic Party's camp, right? And that's his interest in gun control, reducing carbon dioxide emissions, and immigration, mm-hmm. right? Like, that he has now, like, literally for the purposes of this campaign over the past 10 minutes, has decided that he favors a $15 an hour minimum wage, that he thinks the Affordable Care Act is good. Um, he uh, the, the morning we're recording this, he came out with a Wall Street regulation plan. But that's all, like, late backfill. Like, I'm a Democrat now, so I'm going to check these boxes. Before he was running for president, but specifically before he was running as a Democrat, when he was looking very hard at running as an independent in the 2012 and 2016 cycles, the issues that would have been the left flank of Bloombergism were gun control, climate change, and immigration. So I, I think that 
this is not a super rational calculus, but I do think to people who work in the immigration world, the fact that immigration is close to Michael Bloomberg's heart, right, is like something that he went and put money into and that he decided was like a big thing that was wrong with conservatives and that then when Donald Trump became the leader of the Republican Party, Bloomberg officially became a Democrat. And, right. and immigration is clearly at the center of that Trumpian realignment in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, this is not a consensus view at all. There, you know, for yeah. it, right. there's there's actually I but if, I just think, if he I becomes more prominent, I think there's gonna be a lot of tension in the kind of broader civil rights space about how much do you weigh the immigration is close to his heart versus the record on criminal justice well, you, in an era when a lot of people have really become attuned to the intersections between well, the but two. Also, I think you already saw this on, on climate change, right? Which is that like climate change activists are left-wing activists. Mm-hmm. Like they happen to be left-wing activists on the subject of climate change, but like in terms of their personal identity, they are left-wing activists. And they hate Michael Bloomberg just as much as all other kinds of left-wing activists hate right. Michael Bloomberg, right? Yeah. And now there are old people, right, like old graybeards of the environmental movement who are like, hey, like Michael Bloomberg has like personally shut down coal power plants. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like what is what has Bernie Sanders ever actually done for the environment? Uh, but like young activists don't like Michael Bloomberg. And it's going to be exactly the same on immigration, yeah. right? There's going to be people who toiled in the salt mines of bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform who are going to be like, Michael Bloomberg is great, right? And then there's going to be younger activists who've been on the front lines of like fighting with ICE about detention beds who are going to think like Michael like Bloomberg's a cop, right? Like yeah. who like who like who cares, yes. right? And and that's that's gonna be the tension of all this. And what I feel like Bloomberg has not done is because he's he's had so much money and he's been able to do so much through ads, is he hasn't like done a interview, you know, where like he really sits down and he speaks in the fake heartfelt way that heart that politicians do heartfelt stuff and like describe his political evolution. Right. Right. To like say like why it is that he now favors a $15 an hour minimum right. wage and 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 all this other stuff. And you could imagine, because it's it's actually typical, right? For if somebody is shocked out of one set of political commitments, right? If they hear Donald Trump talking yeah. about they're sending rapists and you're like, oh my God, this isn't the Republican Party I used to know. You then learn over the next 18 months that you also agree with Democrats about yeah. health care. Like, yeah. like it's very normal, but like Bloomberg hasn't, hasn't given voice to, like, why is this ex-Republican rich businessman mayor, like— I mean, it, it's interesting because I think that he is also indicative, and I've heard a lot of this from kind of the Trump-skeptical, never-Trump Republicans who are very boisterous in some sectors and not very boisterous I mean, he's in a actual. great candidate for them. That's the thing. I think <laughs> I've been—I I was trying to think about how best to write this, and I'm still figuring it out, but he is, like, never-Trump bait at the—at its— core, because he essentially does speak for the, I was a Republican when the Republican Party looked kind of the way it did in like 1991, perhaps, Um, you know, pre-Republican Revolution of 1994, but not Pat Buchanan-esque. You know, this idea of the compassionate conservative that you see in the early 2000s conservative movement, you know, he is akin to them. He is akin to, you know, 
What if we really crack down on crime and the potential of crime, or pre-crime, as Minority Report would call it, um, but we also acknowledge climate change, and we are pro-choice and pro-marriage equality because that seems fine and cool. I think it, it's interesting, you know, one of the challenges that we're, we keep seeing is that Democrats, you know, as they start, try to decide on a nominee, they're hearing from a lot of people who were not Democrats before Donald Trump, yes. but have kind of become Democrats, but wish Democrats were more like them. They have not become more like Democrats. The idea of like, you should be attempting to to try to gain voters like us, which there are, you know, the never Trump Republican is probably overrepresented in media, but there are a lot of Trump skeptical, independent leaning conservative voters. And we heard from them in primary races and in um, special elections and in the midterms in 2017, 2018 and 2019, you know, people who were like, I generally, you know, I oppose the Affordable Care Act, but I think Trump is a big asshole, and I don't want to hear anything more from him. And so I think that there very much is this idea of, like, we're looking for someone who kind of we can lean towards, whereas I think a lot of Democrats are like, who is this Johnny-come-lately who is saying all of these things but has this record and apparently nonstop audio of saying ridiculous and racist things? And so it, it's been interesting to see as the Democratic tent has widened, not by choice but kind of by circumstance, to include a lot of people who, who would not be Democrats if Hillary Clinton were president or if a host of other things had not taken place. It's interesting to see how much— that tension plays into Bloomberg's rise and also the criticism of Bloomberg. Right. I mean, the related phenomenon here is that most of the Democratic primary electorate is convinced that the most important thing is finding a nominee who can beat Donald Trump. Exactly. And the problem is that there are several different theories put forward by several different candidates about why they're the best person to do that. But it's really the core of my, you know, and Bernie Sanders has a fairly robust argument for electability, right. but it's not the core of his candidacy. Right. The core of Mike Bloomberg's candidacy is you want me on that hill. Right. And I, you know, it's it's something that can be that is has been a very frustrating discourse in the Democratic primary for right. like a year. And frankly, if it is, you know, when Michael Bloomberg is on the debate stage, it's likely to be something that he makes explicit. Yeah. And like a debate isn't the right forum to settle that. It's just theory versus theory. We're not going to have a really robust test of any, you know, theory of electability yeah. until election day. And, you know, while I understand the extent to which everyone is trying to think or a lot of people are trying to think strategically, there needs to be a substantial level of humility about whether you can reasonably predict that Michael Bloomberg is in fact going to you know, have the effect on the electorate that he says he's going to have, and that the fact that never Trump Republicans are so overrepresented in the commentariat makes it more likely than not that people are going to overstate the right. number of them there actually are. I the also think, though, um, you know, I think my final point on this is that we've been having, you know, I think in the media, we've been having kind of this undercurrent of a debate of, you know, how did Donald Trump win the presidency? And Bernie Sanders' argument of how B Donald Trump won is on a host of issues that, you know, Democrats have been getting wrong for decades on trade and on, you know, the getting things wrong, especially with regard to the working class. And his idea is, you know, Donald Trump is a symptom. He's not the cause. And we have to address the symptom. Michael Bloomberg's argument essentially is like, 
you want Donald Trump out, I'll get Donald Trump out. That's all you need to do. It's like he he is offering a Donald Trumpectomy, and uh-huh. he's the only person who can do it. And once the Donald Trumpectomy has taken place, whatever you want him to do, he'll it's fine. He'll figure it out. It's cool. You know, he is a multi-billionaire. I'm sure that that means, you know, I, he, he thinks that that means something. But he is offering something very specific. And I actually think that on those virtues, if you ask voters, you know, do you want— you know, a po- do you want a positive message of how you know Donald Trump is a symptom of things that have been going wrong for years that Obama did wrong that Bill Clinton did wrong you know and we can fix all of those things or do you just want this guy to go away I think that with for voters I think that that's actually kind of a difficult question yeah well so I I want to close with a with a bloodless technocratic critique of Ooh. Michael Bloomberg. Uh, of Michael Bloomberg, <laughs> the bloodless technocrat. Yeah, which Ooh. is, okay, so one of the big things that Bloomberg, I think, was right about when he was mayor is that there should be congestion pricing in New York City. Um, they have it in Singapore. They have it in Oslo. They have it in Stockholm. They have it in London. They should have it in New York. Bloomberg championed this policy. Uh, he did not have the authority to unilaterally get it done. It required action from the New York State legislature, and he was unable to secure the political support for it. Not the most damning thing in the world, but I've seen some people like there's been in, there's been investigative reporting on like how Bloomberg threw his money around to like make political problems go away, and I saw some people say like, eh, you know, this actually kind of makes Bloomberg look savvy and effective. And I've heard some people say like, well, a good thing about Michael Bloomberg being president is he could just like bribe Joe Manchin to vote for climate change bills and stuff. And so it's important to note that like that did not actually work on like a key policy question. You know, like, he had a lot of money. He he tried to use it to wield influence, but he couldn't get it done. Also important, congestion pricing will be coming to New York City in 2021. And it was achieved through, um, I don't know exactly how to put it, but just like the banal work of politics, you know, like in a very normal kind of sense. And I think that actually like this specific cause, which is not super ideological, it's long been championed by a lot of people, it was done more effectively by Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio, who are the epitome of just like hack politicians, you know, but like they were convinced over time that this was the right policy approach, and they did some politics, yeah, right? I, yeah, I mean, I was going to say that, like, in in Bloomberg's defense, that was a particularly dysfunctional era of the New York state legislature. On the other hand, then I remembered the existence of the United States Senate. Right. But it's just that, like, it's not true, right? I mean, this was some of Donald Trump's pitch, like the businessman, yeah. president, the deal yeah. maker. And it's just, in a lot of ways, Trump has been like less cataclysmic than I might have thought as just like somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about. But he's certainly not more effective as right. like a Republican Party legislator than like somebody who knew what he was doing would be. And it was the same for Michael Bloomberg. Like Michael Bloomberg, without his money, he couldn't have won that election in 2001. But he was a subpar like doer of Michael Bloombergism despite having the money. And it's the same thing now. It's like the only reason we're talking about Michael Bloomberg – like if Eric Garcetti had $60 billion – like, yeah. he's the mayor of Los Angeles. Yes. Like, he could be a top-tier presidential candidate, right. right? And, like, it's fine or not, but, like, it's it's not it, 
it's a very like cost ineffective. Like he is a, like below replacement rate politician, Ooh. I think, who's Ooh. being lifted, who's being lifted up by spending hundreds of millions of of dollars on everything, which is different from the idea that the money is giving him like superpower. Right. Yes. Like, and you, you've heard from campaigns, and I think that this is possibly because a lot of people who have worked on campaigns then go talk about it on cable news because you've heard this idea of like, you know, if I were on a campaign that was going against him, I would be terrified of all this money. And I'm like, well, I mean, sure, having a lot of money and doing a lot of ads, but that seems to rely, and I, I keep hearing this, especially in um, with reference to Nevada or South Carolina, the idea of like, oh, black voters will go for Bloomberg because they've seen all these ads. As if black people are just like, well, we saw an ad for him. And we were like, huh, sure, let's go with him. I don't think that's how the electorate works. And I also think that like, it is, you know, we are talking about him because of the money. We are talking about him because he is attempting an experiment, which is, you know, how much money do you need in order to get the nomination for the Democratic Party? And so far, I mean, it's going okay. But again, he's value below replacement. Like, we're not, and especially because I have not heard him talk and it'll be really interesting to see him in the debate as a like as an actual person because cu- currently he's become kind of this like this entity that exists as just a funder of ads and a person who could get it done. Yeah, it's like the Max it Headroom candidate. Yes, exactly. Right? Like and it's... it'll be interesting to see him against actual people because you know one thing you can say for several of the candidates on the stage, and specifically uh, Bernie Sanders, is that Bernie Sanders has basically been Bernie Sanders since like what 1978. And the idea of Bernie Sanders may be much larger than him and increasingly removed from who he actually is as a senator and a politician. But it'll be fascinating to see them go back and forth about, you know, if Bloomberg is kind of the the anti-Sanders. And I think for some people, they might find that appealing. But I also think it is a, t- a test of a theory that I, I don't entirely buy. I want to... I think we could probably have an entire other episode about the kind of the the discourse around black voters in Bloomberg. But Mm -hmm. I do want to point out that to the extent that what we're seeing is a correlation between name recognition and support among black voters, that indicates a lack of enthusiasm for any particular candidate. And that is something that we're going to want to keep an eye on as we get into a general election. I think it's worth noting that there have been some polling showing that Basically, Democratic voters think all of the Democratic yes. candidates are fine. Right. And so pretty much whomever they put forth, they'd be like, sure, right. whatever. Like, it's not like there's someone out there who's like, I still long for Michael Bennett. But there really is a question about to what extent negative partisanship is a motivating force in getting people to the polls. Let's take another break. Do a white paper. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom 
help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. All right. I found this one to be a downer. It's called Well, yeah. It's called Past Place, Present Context, The Impact of Adolescent Racial Context on White Racial Attitudes. Um, it is by Seth K. Goldman and Daniel J. Hopkins. Um, so they start with the the well-known uh, stylized fact that white people who live in places where a lot of black people live uh, experience more, uh, express more negative sentiments about black people. Um, but there's a lot of variation in that, um, and it's consistent with a number of different explanations. Uh, so what they do is they look at where did people grow up, and they show pretty clearly that if you sort of factor in where people grew up, there's no correlation between the racial composition of where people live now uh, and their racial attitudes. It's that white people who grow up, as particularly spend their teen years in places with a lot of black people, express more negative uh, racial sentiments. And then, of course, most people don't move that far, which explains the, the larger stylized fact. I mean, I think it's you say that this is a well-known stylized fact, but I think that it's one of those things that's well-known in the social science literature, but that because— This is the white paper it, section, Dara. We have a different standard no, right. for well-known. No, but, but because, it, because it cuts against a very, very closely cherished, like, idea of progressivism, which mm-hmm. is that if people were only more open to diversity in their own—you know, like, if, if people, like, only encountered and realized that different—people who were different from them in some, funda- in some like, important way but were still people, that they would have increasing tolerance and love for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I—you know, that is not super borne out by the social science literature. The effects—the kind of exposure effect can be extremely contradictory and can depend a great deal on context and, like, pre-existing political beliefs. Um but this kind of the fact that people who are growing up in more diverse contexts are more not less likely to have negative stereotypical attitudes than people who have grown up in the absence of, mm-hmm. you know, of, of anyone who's not like them is like when we talk about the idea that racism is just going to die out, for example, or like when people express shock about the rise of like young right wingers on racial issues this is not something that is kind of a weird aberrational effect of the Trump era, even though it looks like that because a lot of it is like Trump fandom and memes. It is in large part the fact that 
a more diverse America is going to create a more racially conservative white America. Well, I think you have to think, right, when you think about, like, um, simplistic contact hypothesis stuff, right? You have to think about change over time. What's the official, sort of like quasi-official stance of American culture, right? And through the sort of first three quarters of the 20th century, right? The kind of official message people would get was one of white supremacy, right? So to posit under the circumstances of 1944 that, like, actually meeting people who were black and working with them in some context would shift your attitudes in a more progressive direction, I think makes a lot of sense because the idea is that reality will, like, undermine the official propaganda, right? But the contemporary United States, right, on an official level is, like, a very strongly anti-racist society, right? Like, that is the the message that you will get, right? Like, Donald Trump does a Martin Luther King tweet, you you know? No, but, like, there's a huge difference between the United States in 2019, 2020, and the United States in 1950, right? And But so now there's no official, like, abstract propaganda that actual human interaction would undercut, right? right? Mm -hmm. So The the American History X theory does not quite work outside of that extremely specific context. Well, and what you instead have, I mean, what you you also see in American History X, right, is that, like, when people are put into... um, situations where the salience of racial identity goes up, right. uh, that's typically because there is actual yes. diversity, right? It's because Whiteness, there's yeah. an influx of immigrants to Southern California, right? When they weren't there, people weren't sitting around being like, oh, I'm so white. That's yeah. awesome, right? But then, Well, like, although this does bring us to, like, things we've discussed on past white paper segments about the question of whether, like— media exposure makes people feel that they are living in a more diverse yes, place right. no, absolutely. than they actually, you know, in, in terms of like that, you know, the famous, at least in my mind, uh, woman in Minnesota who told the New York Times that she was worried about the caravans coming to her town. Sure. No, no, I mean, the media could, I, but I just mean like, look, like at my uh, school where, where I went when I was a kid, um, was overwhelmingly white. There were a couple black kids, but it was so few that it was like a very integrated environment to an extent. You know what I mean? Like the, I, I get it. You, you know, I get, you, you I know get what, I'm, what saying, I'm saying, right? Yeah. Which is different from like my son's school, right? Which is very diverse. It is diverse enough that like there can be meaningful social separation right. between groups of people. And that's the kind of context in which people's racial and ethnic identities can become much more important to them. Huh. I mean, I think in defense of the kind of simplistic contact hypothesis, we have seen that there is evidence that that works in some cases. And I think it's it's salient to note that kind of the new wave of that work uh, on deep canvassing has used LGBT attitudes right. as its vehicle and like the kind of like test case for it, because we have seen like a really rapid change in LGBT acceptance in a way that like it ha- that hasn't necessarily been the case for attitudes on that has taken much longer for attitudes on race not least because it seems like people are willing to accept the possibility that someone who is a member of their family or a friend of yeah. theirs like might turn out to be LGBT after they have a pre-existing warm relationship yes. or like someone you know someone might be born into their family who's LGBT 
Right. I, you know, I, I, there's a certain extent to which this is also true in a weird way of disability rights activism, which is right now a very, like, left-wing official movement, but that there are some kind of broader— uh, you know, there are there are non-left-wing yeah. constituencies that care a lot about, like, providing better educational resources right. for disabled people because of the kind of, oh, it could be my child. Right. Uh, that isn't as true for race. And I think that we really haven't figured out the right, you know, is there a structured conversation about race in the way that deep canvassing involves a very, like, prescribed process? Right that is going to neutralize negative stereotypical attitudes or is this inevitably a consequence of people living in a you know of of people living in a diverse and anti-racist America that also involves high levels of kind of of what appears to be spontaneous social segregation whether right. or not it actually is spontaneous right because you can't really have a like yo know, I was racist, and then it turned out that my son was black. You don't really have those things. Well, you could have those kinds of moments. But that also relies on a notion of race that is like 23andMe. Yes. Which is not how race works. No, it is not. It is it is a understanding of race that is very Arguably bad for anti-racism. Yes, and very <laughs> genetics-based in a way that makes me feel weird inside. Yeah, it, it seems very much that one of the challenges we face is that this seems to be something that, like, you know, the talk therapy-esque theory of how to combat hate and discrimination does not appear, it appears to have worked pretty effectively on, you know, as you said, on LGBT rights, because that was, you know, when I was at the Human Rights Campaign, the entire effort behind that was the idea of, like, if you told people our stories and if more people came out, that more people would realize that, like, gay people look just like you. Now, this is very controversial among LGBT circles, the idea of should we fight for being just like you or should we fight for being, like, our own separate thing that's very different and does not need to accept what heterosexuals are up to or doing, whatever that may be. But either way, the basic argument of, like, we could be your daughter, your sister, your coworker. You know, we would look like you, but be different in this way. Does not work for conversations of racial discrimination. That's true, and I also think um, I I was uh, rereading recently an article that my grandfather wrote uh, about the uh, Poor People's Campaign, and he he interviews Martin Luther King. Uh, it's about a month before he was assassinated, and and King says to him. You know, so far in the civil rights movement, uh, we've been asking for things that don't really require anyone to give anything up, um, and and that's what that that's the turn. You know that that he's trying to to take here, connecting questions of race to questions of class and and other things, and I think that that's broadly true of the sort of post-1960s racial politics in the United States, that the questions are not around sort of costless formal legal equality. They're around, you know, structures of privilege and group uh, consideration that and are— the interaction of, you know, kind of— social, like, of of subjective social status and material resources. Right. And so, I mean, again, this is a case in which, like, traditionally, it would be very easy 
for a voter in Vermont to subscribe to the strong civil rights agenda as opposed to the merely formal one because there's nothing actually at stake, right? Like we were talking about these Bloomberg policing issues and it turns out to be an easy question because there wasn't a trade-off between stopping and frisking young black and Latino men and getting the murder rate down. But like what if there was, right? It's not always going to be the case that there are these like costless sorts of things. There are situations in which it might make sense to people to say like, look, I'm not like a lunatic. Like I would also feel bad about being stopped and frisked on vague suspicion. But like the fact is that making this relatively small minority of the population bear this high cost is doing something useful for all the rest of us. So I want to do it. Right. And that's the kind of racial conflict that like that only makes sense in the context of a big diverse city. Yeah. Like that's the only situation in which a question like that would arise. But I feel like those are the questions we're dealing with. Right, because I think that it's a very different situation when it is, you know, your father getting stopped or something. Like, I think that that really plays to this idea, you know, it's it's been kind of this overarching idea of democratic politics that, like, you know, you have so many competing groups. But, you know, the alternative is where you just kind of have, like, well, it's okay if bad things happen to these people because overall that would mean that better things are happening to all of these people. And it's interesting to see this, I, this become, you know, a quote-unquote identity politics issue when it's more so about deciding, like, who gets to benefit and who has to bear the cost of specific laws and regulations. Well, and, like, how do we define the good, right? right? Like, do we do we as a polity care about, you know, for example, like, dropping crime, or do we care about people feeling in kind of an imminent, intangible sense included in the community and equal citizens who are not suffering under a two-tier justice system. Indeed. We are all equal citizens in the Weeds Facebook group uh, where you can join, uh, see things, check it out, uh, comment there. Uh, it'll be awesome. Um, and uh, with that, um, so so thanks, guys. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jacqueline Bierfeld, our editor, Jeff Geld, our producer, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. Woo! At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise.